Well, this morning I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. If you brought a Bible, please turn there with us. If you didn't, there are some paperback Bibles that are near you. We'd love it if you would grab those and turn with us as we're going to work our way verse by verse through this text this morning. We're going to look at Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Now, Acts chapter 4 starts up in the middle of a story. It's the continuation of the story that began in Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, we saw the healing of a man who was lame from birth, who was begging at the temple. He was in the gate of the temple called the Beautiful Gate. And as the disciples walked by, they made eye contact, and they tell the man, silver and gold, we do not have, but what we have we give to you. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And the man who was lame from birth, we find out in our text today, he was over 40 years old, He stands up and walks. So more than that, he goes into the temple and he celebrates. Later on in that story in Acts chapter 3, we find Peter preaching to the people at Solomon's portico or Solomon's porch. And in that message, there were uh, threefold uh, points to his message. And we'll see that those are repeated over and over again during the course of Acts and Lord willing, repeated over and over again in this church as well. The three points of the message were these. Jesus, whom the people had handed over to be crucified, is now risen from the dead. First. Second, Jesus is the means by which both this man was healed and by which the people may be saved. Jesus is the one name. Jesus is the means by which any grace is accomplished in the lives of the people who trust in Him. Third, finally, Peter calls the people to repent, therefore, he says, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What is our refreshment? What is our hope? What is our good pleasure? That we would be in the presence of the Lord. How can this be? But that He cleanses us of sin, that He is the just and righteous sacrifice in our place, and that He is risen from the dead that we might have life in him. This is the message of the gospel, and it's been preached in Acts chapter 3. We're going to see very quickly in Acts chapter 4, it's preached again. Please follow along with me. We're going to read verses one, chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. 
This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, who has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them, and it's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God To listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Lord God, this morning we are dependent upon your word again and astonished. Lord, I pray that your word and your work would accomplish the same thing in our midst, that we would be amazed, praising God. Thank you, Lord. Accomplish what you would will this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said, we're going to simply walk through the verses of this chapter, and we're going to see that there are three things that rise up about the proclamation during the course of our study this morning. The first thing that we see in verse 2 is that they were greatly annoyed. (laughs) All the religious leaders, I, I love that it's put that way. There's many other ways you could have said that what they were, but they were annoyed. All right, Peter and John were like, a fly buzzing near the ear. They were a problem. They were an annoyance. The Sadducees were a sort of religious ruling class. Their power centered in the priesthood and around the temple. And they had surrendered much of their religious conviction to win political influence with the Romans. Friends, there is nothing new under the sun. This, this continues to this day and in every time period in the church. How often is that the story of the church to surrender a biblical religious conviction in order to win political influence or some other power in the world? And that is the story with the Sadducees, many of the religious leaders. And it's no wonder then that when the truth of the word is being proclaimed with power in their midst, that they would become greatly annoyed. They would become greatly annoyed because it's threatening their power and influence. They were greatly annoyed, first of all, in the passage that Peter and John, the apostles of Jesus Christ, who had walked with Jesus and who were witnesses both to his crucifixion and his resurrection, they were annoyed that They were teaching the people. Now, Jesus himself said this about the people. Jesus described the people of Israel as 
like a like sheep without a shepherd. They were untaught. They were unshepherded people. The apostles were here teaching the people what the religious leaders had failed to do. How annoying to have your failure pointed out to you in this way. The apostles were serving much the same role as the prophets of old. They were reminding people simply of the promise of God. That is the primary purpose and function of a prophet. To remind the people of the promises of God that they would repent and place their faith in God. And this is what the apostles were doing. And secondly, the great annoyance of the Sadducees were that they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now the Sadducees denied the doctrine of the resurrection. They denied the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead. In fact, the Sadducees had denied much of the truth of the Old Testament Scriptures. And here you have the apostles, particularly Peter and John, declaring the resurrection of the dead in a particular man named Jesus who was alive and that many who were in Jerusalem had actually seen in recent days. The resurrection. The resurrection is a crucial point of the teaching of the early church. And it must continue to be a crucial point for the church today. Listen, Jesus is crucified, yes, Jesus is the sacrifice in the place of sinners that all who place their faith in Him, they can know that their sins have been atoned for and that they may be forgiven. As the passage last week said, their sins are blotted out. But the question of eternal life hangs on the resurrection. Did it work? Is Jesus vindicated? Is Jesus alive? Is there hope of life in Him? Jesus, the crucified Christ, is alive. And if He is alive, who died in the place for our sin, then all who place their faith in Him have the hope of life themselves. The the crucifixion and the resurrection are the two key points of the apostles' teaching. And because the apostles taught these things, look at verse 3. It says, they arrested them. They arrested them, they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. The gathering of the religious leaders wouldn't happen until in the morning, so they sent uh, those to arrest Peter and John. They arrested them and intended to interrogate them, perhaps even to intimidate them into ceasing to proclaim the name of Jesus. That was an annoyance to them. Now, a wonderful passage to write in your margin here in your Bibles would be John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20. Here's what Jesus has to say about what would happen to his apostles and all who would follow after him. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world... Because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you, Jesus says. Now we call this a a service of celebration and remembering. And so we ought to remember what Jesus explicitly says, remember the word that I said to you. 
This is crucial for us to remember today. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, to those who follow after him. Is it any less true of us today? Are are we not also those who follow after Jesus? Is Jesus not also our master or have we become greater than him? The Christian church has spent decades in our culture close to the halls of power. That's not necessarily a problem. The problem is that we have often made compromises to get there. While we should never seek persecution, unfortunately, some can manipulate that passage to try to place themselves in a place where they would be persecuted. No, that's not the teaching of Scripture. Rather, we are to be a people who seek for the things that make for peace, right? but we should never be surprised that friendship with Jesus might also reap suffering. We should never be surprised, but rather we should remember. And then verse 4 happens. It's it's a verse that's actually quite unnecessary to the telling of this narrative, but there's a story that the writer Luke is telling us. In verse 4 it says, Many of those who had heard the word believed, And the number of the men came to about 5,000. Here's the deal. Just as they were arresting the ones who proclaimed the truth of the gospel, just as they were putting an end to that preaching stuff, others were coming to follow after Jesus whom they proclaimed. And this week in our preaching primer as many of the Crosspoint pastors were together talking and praying through the Scriptures, one of the pastors said the cause of the wonder wasn't the apostles. The cause of the wonder wasn't even the healing of the man. The cause of the wonder was the Word. You see that in verse 4. Many of those who had heard the Word believed. And the Word that was preached was the Gospel. The word of Jesus, crucified and raised from the dead, and in whose name is forgiveness of sins. This is the word by which the church grew. We'll see it over and over again during the course of Acts. And it must be so also today. What are we enamored with? What has our attention? What is our hope of growth together in the county? It must be the preaching of the word applied to the human heart by the grace of the Spirit to give Faith in the Word, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, you can look at this event, this arrest, in two ways. And you can say the fruit of the preaching of the Word was what? Well, you get arrested. (laughs) That's the fruit of the preaching of the Word. What's the next thing that happens? Right? The fruit of faithfulness is to be persecuted. Or, you can look at this passage and see that the fruit of the preaching of the word was that many more believed and were saved. This is why neither you nor I need to be concerned with the fruit of our faithfulness. We just don't have the proper perspective. We don't have the godlike omniscience and wisdom to see what would be the fruit of our faithfulness. We just don't know. What if they had killed Peter and John on the spot? Many believed and were saved. Peter and John wouldn't have known about that in their life, but that's the result of the work of God in the midst of faithfulness. We just don't have the right sort of perspectives. The Lord is in charge 
of fruitfulness. The call of the disciple is to be charged and to be concerned with faithfulness. And so we continue to proclaim Jesus no matter what the cost, right? No matter what the the pragmatic view may seem. I mean, the apostles being arrested seems like a detriment to the word going forward. But the Lord is working in the midst of their faithfulness. And listen, let us not forget this. Even our faithfulness is the fruit of God's own faithful and generous work in the hearts of those who proclaim. The very fact that a sinner like me and a sinner like you could have the praise of God on our lips is the fruit of God's faithfulness to us to bear the fruit of proclamation. And so we celebrate. It is a win just to have the opportunity to have our hearts bent on the glory of God in gospel proclamation. Let's continue on with the story. In the next paragraph, there in verse 5, on the next day, the rulers and the elders, the scribes, these men that are listed, all of the high priestly family, they're gathering together. And this is quite a gathering. This is quite a gathering of the rulers and leaders of the people of Jerusalem. And they ask this question in verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now they're speaking of the miracle that took place in chapter 3. The man who was born lame, who's now leaping for joy and praising God in the temple, probably making quite a ruckus. And then Peter and John preaching the gospel to a crowd that gathered quite a ruckus, teaching and proclaiming in the name of Jesus, even resurrection from the dead, quite a ruckus. And they want to know by what power or by what name do you do this? Well, this is a huge opportunity for the apostles. It's unlike any opportunity that they've had so far in the book of Acts. It's a huge opportunity. This is their opportunity to demonstrate to all the people of Jerusalem and recorded in scriptures for us still today to answer the question, are they crowd manipulators? Are they a people who can work a crowd for their benefit, their glory, and their power? Or are they those who have become so captured by a truth that they would risk everything to make it known? Crucial moment. Verse 8. Verse 8 is essential. You can't have the rest of Acts without the beginning of verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done by a crippled man to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known. All of what they would let be known is by means of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised it would be so, that they would not be skillful crowd manipulators, but they would be a people anointed by God for a singular proclamation. Matthew 10, verses 19 through 22, Jesus says this to his disciples, when they deliver you over. You you had to wonder, did they scratch their heads and say, what are you talking about? Being delivered over? Being delivered over to whom? What's that going to look like? Are you talking about arrest? What's going to happen to us when we preach your gospel? When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. And here we have a fulfillment 
of the Scriptures. For it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. And right in the middle of being hated by the world, as Jesus said elsewhere, they are being cared for and comforted and equipped by the Holy Spirit of God. The fact that Jesus sends the Holy Spirit as comforter means that there may be cause and need for comfort, does it not? Why is Jesus the comforter for the one who proclaims the gospel? Maybe the one who proclaims the gospel would be in need of comfort. And the greatest comfort to the one who proclaims the gospel is this, that when we are called to be witnesses for His name, the Holy Spirit will bear witness in our own hearts and in our minds. So let us continue to remember that God Himself is the first proclaimer. Nobody stands up and says, hey, I thought of something. I call it the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you all about it. It's not the witness of Peter and John, not a witness to their own minds, not a witness to their own ideas, but a witness to a proclamation that they themselves saw and heard. Because Jesus Himself, the Lord God Himself, is the first proclaimer. And we, as His witnesses and ambassadors, are simply joining the Lord in His ongoing work, making known His glory in the Gospel. In verse 9, Peter asks the questions, are we being examined concerning a good deed? I appreciate what Peter says here. He's saying, look, we're, we're guiltless. Like, are you concerned that we healed a man? <laughs> what were you doing? Right? Is it wrong to do a good deed on the way to the worship of the Lord in His temple? The fact is, Peter and John, they lived uprightly in the community. We ought to take note of that. Do we live uprightly? Are we people who are about good deeds and making for peace in our communities? It's, it could be so simple as, have we given our neighbors cause to complain? Just yesterday, I got a, a notice in my mail. I live in one of those HOA neighborhoods. I got a notice that we parked on the street. And I'm like, oh no, I parked on the street. But you know what? If somebody in my neighborhood thinks that's not making for peace, I'm going to figure out how to fit more cars in my driveway. Right? We're to be a people who are or about good deeds, and, and to be known to live uprightly in our community. Why not? It's a small thing, even compared to what Peter and John are about here. In verse 10, verse 10 begins with these crucial four words, let it be known, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, who God raised by this man, this man is standing before you well. Now, he could have caved to the pressure at this point. He could have said, I mean, come on now, all I did was a good deed. All I did was heal a man. Can't you just let us go? We'll try and do good deeds quieter next time. He could have caved to the pressure. But instead he says, let it be known. That is the whole purpose of his preaching in the first place. 
Let us know precisely the repeated content of the proclamation. What is it that the Apostle Peter wants to make known? He wants to make known by the name of Jesus. This is the first bit of content of the Gospel. The the clear and clean declaration uh, and response to the leader's question is it's by the name of Jesus. The glory of God alone is the first bit of content of any of our Gospel preaching. It's why we have to be careful about even the way we go about our gospel preaching, that it might be evident in the midst of our proclamation that it's to the glory of God alone, by the name of Jesus. Secondly, whom you crucified. Let us understand what is so offensive about this name. It's not the name of Jesus that's able to heal a crippled man. That's not offensive. That sounds like a a good thing is that the leaders had put Jesus to death for the sole purpose of preserving their power, position, and authority. That's offensive. How many times have you or I sidelined the Christ at best that we might maintain our position, our power, or our authority? That's an offense. Third piece of content of the gospel. Whom God raised from the dead. Jesus isn't dead. You sidelined him. You thought you put him out. You thought you got him out of the way, but he's not dead. He's alive. And there are many witnesses. That's offensive. But the greatest witness that he is alive is that the power of his name continues to heal and the power of his name continues to forgive sins. This is the greatest evidence of the power of God who is alive. Are you seeing a pattern? There's a pattern to the apostles' teaching in the Scriptures. There's a a foundation to the apostles' teaching. The apostles are giving glory to God at all times. The apostles are proclaiming Jesus who was crucified, and they are proclaiming that Jesus is clearly alive, and His work is ongoing in the world. Much of the remainder of the New Testament are simply an unpacking of these three realities in letters and books and sermons that are recorded for us in Scriptures. The unpacking of the glory of God, the crucified Christ, and the resurrected Lord. The gospel is teaching about Jesus. But it's also a teaching about the roles that we have to play in the gospel. Let us get our roles clear. From the beginning, it has been our role. If you look at the text, there's actors in the text. In verse 10, whom you crucified. That's our role. We play the role of the sinner of those who deny the Lord and seek His crucifixion. And it's for that reason that we need the Gospel at all. It's the reason why we need the proclamation, that we would understand our role, that we are rebels and sinners in need of a Savior, and it's for that reason that Jesus had to die. And it is the role of the Lord who raises from the dead. The Lord who brings redemption. The Lord who saves. The Lord who is the God of resurrection. He who has loved us 
has accomplished victory in order to save us. We have to understand our roles. We do not save ourselves. If we could summarize the the meaning of those two roles, we do not save ourselves. We are the people in need of rescue. He is the rescuer. Look at verse 11. Peter illustrates it with a psalm, a psalm that probably could have broken up in song right in that moment. They all knew it. Verse 11, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which had become the cornerstone, the stone the builders rejected. Psalm 118. It goes like this, Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is the stone rejected by the world, but established by God as the cornerstone, the rock of the good news of the gospel. This is the stone. There is no other. Huge implication. That means that to reject Jesus, if there is no other stone by which we may be saved, if there is no other cornerstone, but He is the cornerstone, to reject Jesus is to reject salvation. He's the stone upon which is built the whole of the hope that we have in God. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. It's the order of our service, right? That we hold up God and His glory and His gospel. And as we see what He's done, we begin to sing. And we say, the Lord has done this. And the Lord has done that. And the Lord was crucified and the Lord is resurrected. And the Lord has applied His gospel to me by His Spirit and His Word. This is what the Lord has done. And it's marvelous in our eyes. And we overflow in worship and gratitude and lives leveraged for that proclamation. Verse 12 is one of the most powerful testimonies and proclamations that the witnesses have to give. Verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is to say, there is no other name. The, the leaders, you remember? When they're asking for Peter's and John's testimony, they, their question was, in what name? And Peter's response is, there is no other name. What name might me, we have appealed to for the healing of the sick and the forgiveness of sin but Jesus. There is no other name. You should know the name. There is no other name. No stronger statement could have been made in that court, and no stronger statement could be made even to this day. Here's the deal. It's one thing to say that Jesus saves. And even to this day in the culture that we are in, that can be tolerated. You can say Jesus saves, and the world will hear, that's nice. I'm glad that Jesus has been able to help you out, and that you've found this Holy Spirit that you speak of a great comfort to your soul. 
I'm glad to hear Jesus saves. But if we continue and say, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Why are we devoted to Jesus? Why do we set aside Sundays for celebration and particular weekdays for community gatherings and mornings for devotion and our days to service in His name? Why are we devoted to Jesus? There's no other name. There's no one else. There is a singular message, and this is our singular hope. It's all we got. We believe He's sufficient. This statement that there is no other name not only means that Jesus is the only one who saves, it has a great comfort to the one who joins in the proclamation of the gospel. Here's what it means. When you, in boldness, comforted by the Spirit and equipped, share the gospel with a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, a family member, someone that you meet during your course of travel in this world, when you share the gospel in that place, it means the gospel preacher cannot save. It's not the name of Jesus and you and your proclamation. You cannot save. The gospel proclaimer simply proclaims the name, and the name of Jesus Christ is powerful and able to save. To be saved under the name of Jesus is to abandon all hope in every other name, even in our gospel proclamation. What a comfort, right? That means that you can go in that name. And you don't have to say, well, I'm I'm not very good at that sort of thing. Nobody said you were. Even the people here make note of the fact that Peter and John are not well equipped in their heritage to be going about the business that they are going about. Nobody said you ever would be. Because your name is not the means by which anyone is saved. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, now boldness, that's something your name can grab a hold of. That's something that one who is enamored by a great powerful name can grab a hold of. They saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men. Do you see that? Bold, uneducated, and common. And they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Uneducated common men. They were men with regular professions, regular occupations. They had no special degrees. They had no accreditations, except they had been with Jesus. Among the people that I respect most in Christ in this world, there's preachers that I listen to on podcasts, there's People who have written books that I've found to be profound and helpful. But among the people I most respect in Christ in this world, very, very few of them have seminary degrees. Most of them have received their accreditation early in the morning, day by day, year after year. Many literally juggling a child in one arm who woke too early, and then the other, some sort of big oversized Bible early in the morning. And they're bouncing this one while trying to read this one. Pouring over the Scriptures day after day, laboring 
in prayer, opening homes, messy, lived-in homes for the sake of neighbors, sacrificially, repeatedly giving themselves for the church. And I look at him and I say, that, that person, that person has been with Jesus. I see that in their boldness. And it is a commendation. It is their accreditation. I'm regularly astonished and truly, genuinely encouraged by you. And from that place, having been with Jesus, we can be bold. We can be a bold church in this simple and clear proclamation. The, the passage says in verses 14 and 15 that they had nothing to say. <laughs> they recognized they'd been with Jesus, verse 14, seeing the man who was healed standing beside them. They had nothing to say in opposition. So they simply commanded them to leave the council and they conferred with one another. What do you do when you accuse someone and all you see is boldness and that they've been with someone who's amazing? This means that only the gospel's the only way that these leaders could get at the apostles were that the apostles' own words would condemn them. And so this is what the leaders tried to do. They tried to get the apostles to condemn themselves. Let's look at how they do it. Verses 16 through 18. They said, What shall we do with these men? For the notable sign has been performed. It's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. They clearly believe that a notable sign had been performed. They join in the testimony of the witnesses that something amazing had happened. They could not deny it. If you can't deny the miracle, maybe... Maybe we can get the apostles to say something to deny the name by which they did what is undeniable. And that's what they do. Look at verse 19. When Peter and John answered them, when they were told and charged not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You see, these men had not heard a voice in their head. They hadn't followed some inner desire or leading. They were following the explicit command of the Lord Himself, recorded for us also in the Scriptures, to go and make disciples. And even as they're compelled by that word, they are also compelled and equipped by the Holy Spirit of God that Jesus had sent them. And so they could not deny Him. The, the miracle is undeniable, and so is the power of the name who sent them. Verse 20, We cannot but speak. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Jesus crucified, Jesus raised, all power and glory to Jesus who alone can save. Can you see where we got this, this series title for this sermon series in Acts? Witnesses. These are witnesses who have seen something, who have heard something, and now are bearing witness to that name. 
As we close, I want to draw our attention to three things. Three things that rise up really from all of our time and acts thus far. There are three aspects to proclamation, and I want to commission you with this. I want to encourage you with this. I want you to go and become accredited in this. The first aspect of proclamation is that it is bold proclamation. Now, if you read Acts, you see very quickly that boldness doesn't come out of a mere willfulness. It is a spirit-empowered, bold proclamation. This is what we receive from the apostles' teaching and from the apostles' demonstration that they were a people who had been with Jesus. Do you want to engage in bold proclamation? Perhaps awaken a little earlier and try and hold that Bible at the same time. You have to spend time with Jesus. We must go with bold proclamation. It's true. In fact, next week, as we continue in chapter 4, Pastor Matt Helmenthaler is going to join us next week in chapter 4 where the disciples of Jesus respond to persecution not with a prayer to an end to suffering. The disciples respond to the persecution with a prayer for boldness to proclaim the gospel. What do they do? Do they work up a willful boldness or do they go and spend more time with Jesus in prayer for boldness? Secondly, while our proclamation must be bold, empowered by the Spirit of God, having spent time with the Christ, our proclamation must also be clear. You see, there's so much in Acts that makes the gospel, because it is, sound like heat and fire, like rushing wind and divided tongues as of fire. But the gospel must also be spoken to be understood. It's not just heat. There's a substance to it. It is a witness clearly to the death and the resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. Apart from that clarity, you can be bold all you want. You're probably not preaching the gospel. It's bold proclamation, but it's not of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Finally, it is a singular proclamation. Jesus is the only way. And His way is sufficient for the salvation of the lost. There is, the apostles say, salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Friends, the proclamation is bold. It's clear and it's singular. This reality on its, uh, the reality is on our own. We're sinners and rebels against the glory of God and against His holiness. And God is just to hold us accountable for our sin. But Jesus has given us life in His death. And He has secured for us life in the hope of His resurrection. Life and salvation is found in Jesus. And this is our bold, clear, and singular Testimony, And so I want to call you with the apostles this morning to that bold, that clear, that singular declaration. And a call to repent and believe in Jesus. Let's pray. 
Lord God, if this would be our story, if we would actually be Acts 29 and a continuation of what you are doing in your scriptures that you have made us with the apostles witnesses to your gospel as recorded in the scriptures, bold, clear, and singular. Lord, it is because you would equip us, because you would send your spirit to fill us, to comfort us, to enable us, to remind us that in, by the Spirit we can be with Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would make this so of our church, and if there is one who is far off this morning who has not been with Jesus, Lord, that you would draw near, that you would convict of sin, and that that one would cry out in faith, in repentance and belief. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in our midst. We pray that you, you alone would save and give us increase, give us fruitfulness in the faithfulness of our proclamation in this county and around the world. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your great name. Amen.